welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by small group director Sherry Benke as we continue our series, The Invitation. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Well, good morning, Yellow Box. You guys are lively this morning. When they said good morning, you must have a three-day weekend or something, right? Everybody excited here. Okay, who, by a show of hands, is still connected to their childhood friend? That you're still connected to them in some way, you still see them. When we're growing up, our friendships are everything to us, right? They are everything to us. Our friendships are our life. I've shared with you guys that I grew up in Oklahoma, and my cousins were literally my next-door neighbors, And so my cousin Trisha and I, we grew up together. We've known each other our entire lives. We are less than a year apart, and we did absolutely everything together whenever I was growing up. We uh, had sleepovers together. We were cheerleaders together. We were on the rifle team (laughs) together. We were. We were on the rifle team together. We cried over uh, boyfriends and lost loves. We've been in each other's weddings. We slathered baby oil and iodine on us. And now we talk about anti-wrinkle cream. But man, we live hundreds of miles away from each other now. But man, when we were growing up, our friendship was absolutely everything to us. Um, it was our life. And so maybe you experienced that growing up as well. Maybe the friends that you had in high school or in college, they were your life. You invested in them so much. But research paints a concerning picture. Research indicates that we reach our social peak at 25. So if you are 25 or younger, you're really in the time of your life as far as your social circle. You're surrounded by more people than you probably ever will be in the rest of your life. You're at the peak. But trends say as we get older, there is a decline in the number of connections that we have relationally, actually a sharp descent all the way through the rest of our lives. But here's the thing. Just because we don't have uh, these real connections anymore doesn't mean we don't need them. We still need them even though we don't have them as much. And here's why that's important. Um, Anybody a TED Talk junkie? I watched a TED Talk not too long ago. Some people get caught up in Facebook. Some people get caught up in Pinterest. I lose hours on TED Talks. I don't know. And then I feel like I can solve all the world's problems after I watch them. But I was watching this particular TED Talk, and this TED Talk was on the strongest predictor of how long you will live. That's what the TED Talk was on. What are the predictors that can predict who will live a long life? And so researcher Julia Holt from Brigham Young University, she studied tens of thousands of middle-aged people asking a series of questions to try to predict what would predict a long life for somebody. So she asked them about their uh, socioeconomic class, the work that they did, uh, what were their health habits? Did they smoke? Did they drink? Um, Did they exercise? Did they eat healthy? Did they go to the doctor? Uh, Were they married? Were they single? And she asked these series of questions to tens of thousands of middle-aged people. And then she waited several years. 
she waited several years and then revisited that same group of people to see who was still alive and then asked a series of questions again to try to get to what would predict, what were the single greatest predictors of living a long life? So what do you think that is? Well, the results are pretty surprising and probably not what you would expect. Now, eating right and exercising is something I think is a good thing for us, but that is not the number one thing that leads to a long life. It's good, but it's definitely not the top 10. The two top predictors of living a long life are closely connected. The first one is just having simple social interactions. That's the number one thing. Simple social interactions, uh, just with people that you see on a regular basis, casually, maybe somebody you see at the grocery store, uh, the the barista at the coffee shop, um, your neighbors, but not that you would just see them, but you would have these little interactions with them, that you would say hi, you you would uh, say good morning to your neighbor, you would chat with the person at the grocery store or the barista making your coffee. So that's number one, just a social, casual interaction. But number two is closely related because it's having close friends. Close friends, people you can call on. People you can call on in the middle of the night if your car breaks down. People who you can call and to take you to the emergency room if you're experiencing chest pains. People you can have celebrate with you, but also people who will sit with you in despair. Those are the key point indicators of determining a long life. And you see, the young people get this. Our students in the room, they get this. They know that friends are everything. And so just this one, if we have students in the room, just this one, students, I give you permission to turn to your parents and say, you know what, I'm right. <laughs> right? I'm right. They get this friend thing right. Okay, if you're just joining us, we are in week two of the invitation. That's the series that we've been in. We've been ramping up to what we call Show Up Sunday. So as Ian mentioned, you should have got a packet just like this. We are talking about writing down five names to invite folks to Show Up Sunday, September 16th. And see, here's why this is important. Here's why this is important. We don't just invite people to fill up this auditorium. We invite people, people like me, to experience Jesus. To experience Jesus here. This is where people experience Jesus. They hear about Jesus, but we want people to experience Jesus. See, Jesus makes our life better, and Jesus makes us better at life. So we're not here just to fill up this auditorium. We're talking about people like me. We're talking about people like Tracy and Karen, who we heard about last week. Uh, if you were here, we, we told you about Tracy, who had invited her neighbor, Karen, to the new Downers Grove launch in February. And we shared a little bit of their story. So I'm going to get you caught up on what their story was last week. But there's also a little bit of an update as well. Check out this video. There's been a few times that I know community has challenged us to write down five names and be praying for those people. And Karen was one of those. I heard about community through my neighbors, uh, Tracy and Andrew. I've been involved in several conversations about their church um, with their children and with Tracy and Andrew both. When I first wrote her name, I 
wasn't that close to her. As I grew to know Karen, she went through a really rough time uh, with her dad's passing. With Tracy and Andrew's help, and you know, I would come over here at night and I would talk to them and process things and pray. And even though there's always going to be sorrow in my heart, and uh, I'm always going to miss my dad, but I know that. Uh, God is with me, and he's going to pick me up, and things are going to be okay. And uh, there's a reason why I have wonderful friends in my life, and there's a reason why I um, learned of the church and why I go there, and sometimes it's okay to reach out to people for help. One of the things I'm looking forward to in my spiritual journey uh, next is baptism. I am ecstatic. I cannot wait to dunk her. <laughs> I never would have expected that that would happen like this. Yes, dunking somebody is the spiritual term for baptism, and that's exactly what happened uh, with Karen last Sunday. One invitation changed Karen's entire life. One invitation uh, in, had her experience who Jesus was in an undeniable way. And, and listen, you have people in your life. You have friends, family, neighbors, colleagues who are just one invitation away from a completely different and better life. So here at Community, we take following Jesus seriously. And when we study the life of Jesus, we can actually look into um, how he lived, how he lived his life. And over and over again, we see him making these intentional investments into relationships. And today we're going to look at the gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at the gospel of Matthew to get an idea of how did Jesus invest in these relationships? What did it look like? Uh, we can look at it as, hey, a day in the life of Jesus. What does it look like? We can look at these stories. We can see what the implications are and we can begin to apply them to our life. So before we actually get into the text of Matthew, I want to give you kind of a little backstory, a little context to what we're talking about here. Um, when Matthew wrote this gospel, his main audience were the Jewish people. That was his audience. And the Jewish people were waiting on their Messiah. They, they wanted to be rescued. They had been oppressed. And so they were waiting on the Messiah. So as Matthew is penning the gospel here, that's his main audience. He is trying to convince them that Jesus is who they have been waiting for. He's the Messiah. He is who they need. He is who they want. And so that's who the main audience is here. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is who they are looking for. But as we come to chapter 9 in the book of Matthew, there are three short stories that we're going to talk about today that kind of really demonstrate Jesus making these investments in people's lives, these specific investments. And so the first one that I want to talk about is um, Jesus. And, and prior to um, this scripture here, Jesus has been out um, healing people. He's been out casting out demons. He has been calming uh, the storms and he has returned from all this great work. 
And I don't know what you do when you return from a business trip, but whenever I return from a business trip, I like to go home, maybe binge watch some Stranger Things, put my feet up, and relax. But this is what Jesus does whenever he gets back. And we read this in Matthew 9, right at the very beginning. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus doesn't go home and kick up his feet. He actually sees this man here. He stops He gives him his attention, and he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're watching this scene unfold, and you know Jesus has been out healing people all across the land, whenever you hear him say, Son, your sins are forgiven, you may be wondering, why doesn't he just heal him? Isn't that what he's supposed to do? Isn't that what he's been doing? Why is he saying your sins are forgiven? It seems kind of irrelevant right now. I mean, the guy, that's not going to help him get up and walk. So why would Jesus say that to him? And here's something uh, that's important for us to know right here in our 21st century that was happening back in the first century. When people experience disease or disability, In that culture, people thought it was because of their sin. Any physical ailment that somebody suffered from, they thought it was either their sin or maybe even the sin of their parents. They had this idea that somehow they deserved this disease, they deserved this disability. But Jesus knew that wasn't true. However, the people there, that man, he believed it to be true. And as a result, people who suffered from physical ailments, they would have this extra burden of guilt, this extra burden of shame, thinking that somehow they had caused their disability and disease, or worse yet, that they deserved their disability, their affliction. And so this man, he's lying on a mat, paralyzed, feeling the weight of his guilt and the weight of his shame his whole life. It's, Jesus looks at him, and he's not just interested in his physical well-being. He looks at him. He looks at his heart. He wants his whole being to be healed. And he says, your sins are forgiven, knowing that he's lifting that weight of shame off of him. He does physically heal him, This is that first principle that we can apply that Jesus uh, indicates here as he's interacting with this man. It says that Jesus is invested in relationships by seeking to understand people's hearts. He looks into what is going on into somebody's soul. He is interested in what's going on in their heart. It's not this kind of superficial thing that's happening. He's making an intentional investment to look people in their eye, to be cognizant of what their deep longings are and speak to that. He speaks to people's hearts. And that's the first thing that we can take away from this story. Now, as we read on uh, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus continues um, into the city and he comes across a tax collector uh, sitting at his booth, just doing his job, right? Uh, Now, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of the IRS, but I don't think any of us would say that we hate IRS agents, right? 
Maybe some of us will. Maybe some of us would say that we don't like them. But see, in Jesus's day, these tax collectors, they weren't just IRS agents. They were the lowest of the low. They were despised by people. People crossed to the other side of the street. And here's why, with good reason. Tax collectors, um, they worked for the Roman government and the Roman government was known for oppressing the Jewish people. But also these tax collectors, they would intimidate people and they would force them to overpay on their taxes. And that uh, extra... Uh, money that they would embezzle from them, that's how they made their living. So with good reason, people despise these tax collectors because that's how they made their living, by intimidating and robbing the Jewish people. But Jesus comes across this hated tax collector, but instead of passing by and ignoring him like everybody in the village does, he, he doesn't, he, he actually goes over there and he begins to invest in him. In fact, Jesus decides to have dinner with him. He decides to have dinner with him. And here, and this is a big deal. I, I know in our culture, when we have dinner with somebody, that is really a, a, a nice hospitable gesture. It's a way to take um, maybe an acquaintance uh, towards a friendship. But sharing a meal in Jesus's day was way more important, way more significant than that, like times a thousand. It was a deeply symbolic to have a meal with somebody. It was significant. And that's why the religious leaders were so frustrated with Jesus. Not only was he associating with the tax collector, he was actually having dinner with the tax collector. But then Jesus explains his actions here. This is what he says. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. See, Jesus made an intentional investment into those that others despised. That's what we see in this story. See, he ate with people that others avoided. He met with people and associated with people that others despised. And so that brings me to point number two that we can take um, as this principle, Jesus, where Jesus invested in relationships by affirming people's value. He affirmed their value regardless of their status. He affirmed their value. See, he is demonstrating to everybody who can see that all people are welcome in his kingdom. Every single person bears the image of God. Every single person you and I encounter has the image of God, whether they realize it or not. But as Christ followers, we know that to be true. And it's our job, just like Jesus recognized the image of God in everybody, it is our job as his followers to recognize that the very image of God is in every single person that we encounter. And that image deserves dignity, recognition, and value. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. This simple invitation to dinner to this despised tax collector changed the history of the world. Anybody know what this tax collector's name is? If you know it, shout it out. Matthew. What gospel are we reading from today? Matthew. So we need to keep that in mind when we're thinking about our five when we're thinking about our five. And I can tell you what, I can easily left my, let myself off the hook here whenever I'm thinking about the five. I'm like, I've got a whole room full of people who are inviting five people. You know, what difference does it make with me? But I have to keep that in mind. I have to keep that in mind. I have people in my life that I see on a daily basis that are one invitation away from a completely 
different and better life. I need to remember that. I need to remember the story of Matthew. I need to remember the story of Tracy and Karen that we saw here. Okay, third story. And we're going to jump a little bit further into chapter 9 here in the book of Matthew. And I want to focus on this third way that Jesus made an investment in his relationships to those around him. And, and this is um, Jesus in the synagogue. And then we see that a synagogue leader actually comes and approaches him. And this is a big deal because this synagogue leader was probably an enemy of Jesus's at the time. He was probably one of those guys who was really mad at Jesus for having dinner with the tax collector. He was probably shocked and outraged at him. But let's look at his posture here. It says that the leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hands on her and she will live. And so his posture is, a, he, he's, he's on his knees and he's begging. He's like, come help me, help my daughter. And this is where we get this next point of Jesus. Jesus actually invests in his relationships by meeting people's specific needs. Jesus met his specific need right then and there as he could. And that's something that we can do too. Look into specific needs that people have. And as we look throughout the chapter 9 of Matthew, we see this relational investment over and over and over again. Jesus intentionally investing in people. He's intentionally looking into their heart. He's intentionally addressing their specific needs, adding value to who they are. And so his example challenges me. It challenges me, and I hope it challenges you. I hope it challenges us to ask this question, am I following Jesus by investing in people as I go throughout my day? Am I following him by investing in people the way he invested in people? Remember these five people that we talked about here, inviting them to show up Sunday. Are we intentionally investing in them, looking for ways to invest in them relationally? I'm going to give you a few ideas on what that may look like for you, um, which is also great ideas for myself whenever I think about these five and and how I can begin to intentionally invest in these relationships. And the first one is, as as you've written down those five names, um, throughout the day, if uh, they come to mind, um, I usually pray for them. But let's take that a step further. Let's not just pray for them. Let's send them a text or call them. Ask them, how are you doing? Dig into their heart a little bit. Ask them if you can pray for them. And by doing so, you can dig into their heart. You can connect with them in a deeper way. The next uh, way we can uh, intentionally invest in these relationships is to share a meal with somebody. We got Labor Day teed up real cool for you tomorrow. So it's a great opportunity to to just invite one of those five over for a dinner if you're having a cookout to bring them along. We all eat a meal uh, every day. Most of us do. Great way to just invite somebody to come be part of that meal. Nothing takes a relationship farther than just sharing a meal with somebody. And we see that with Jesus over and over again throughout scripture that he shares a meal with them. Another thing is to... Serve the people around you. If you've connected with them, if you know them, I mean, you probably know those five pretty well that you put on that list. 
Look for opportunities to serve them. Simple ways, grabbing their mail, picking up their recycling bin, bringing it to their door, mowing their lawn if they have a need, driving them somewhere. But Jesus invested. He invested in these relationships by meeting specific needs. And we can do that as well. Matthew wrote his gospel so people could know who Jesus was. He wrote this gospel so they would know that this is who they need. This is who they want. This is who they've been looking for. This is the Messiah. We all have people in our life. We all have people in our life like Karen who are looking for hope. We all have people in our life like the the paralytic who was healed, who needs healing and forgiveness. We have people in our life like the tax collector who need acceptance. We have people in our life like that man at the synagogue who has specific needs that need to be met. And we have friends and family and colleagues and neighbors who are one invitation away from a completely different and better life. And we have the opportunity to be that invitation. And so I would love for us to be that community, be that community that goes out and looks with intent and attentive, just like Jesus did, to begin to invest in these relationships and these people that we come across, that we would invest in them, that we wouldn't pass by, that that we would see them and we would make an intentional investment in them and that we would make an invitation perhaps an invitation that would completely change somebody's life. Will you guys pray with me, please? Father God, I pray for people in this room who are like Karen, who need hope, Um, who are like that paralytic that we read about who needs forgiveness, tax collector who needs acceptance. Gosh, I I pray that this is a community that they experience that, that they experience Jesus. But Father, I know each and every one of us, we have people in our lives, place them on our hearts, place them on our minds, make us write them down and pray for them and seek for ways to intentionally invest in those relationships so they can find their way back to you, knowing that you are who they are looking for. You are who they need. You are their Messiah. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you sent him here. You, sh- you showed us the way. You showed us these ways of investing in people. And Father, I just thank you for his example. I thank you for his forgiveness. I thank you for his Holy Spirit that empowers us. And it's in his holy name that I pray.